Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Welcome OnScript listeners. This is Aaron Heim coming to you from Wycliffe Hall in Oxford, and I'm delighted to host the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism, and president and co-founder of The Witness, a Black Christian Collective, Jamar Tisby. Jamar's writing has been published in the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Atlantic, Vox, and CNN, and he also is the host of the podcast Pass the Mic, which he hosts along with Vice President of The Witness, Tyler Byrne, and his own podcast Footnotes, both of which you can check out at thewitnessbcc.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Jamar, we're so happy you could join us. Welcome to OnScript. This is a pleasure and a privilege. Looking forward to our conversation. Jamar, I read in your bio that you grew up north of Chicago, but that you've now lived in the Deep South in the Mississippi Delta for a number of years, where you've worked as a teacher for Teach America, um, where you moved after completing your BA at Notre Dame. Now, that's a big move. Um, And since that move, you've completed an MDiv at Reform Theological Seminary, and now you're finishing up a PhD in history at the University of Mississippi. So you've been there in the Deep South, you've been educated in the Deep South, But help us understand, what was it like for you as a black man to move from the Midwest to the Mississippi Delta? Definitely a culture shock going from the North Shore of Illinois down to what one author calls the most southern place on earth. Because one of the things that I had to learn is there's not one South, there are many Souths. And so uh, in Mississippi alone, you've got Gulf Coast, you've got Central, you've got Western, you've got Eastern. And of course, you've got the Delta, which is a whole culture unto itself. So I had a whole lot to learn. And as a black person, you know, growing up outside of the South, there are a lot of stereotypes about the South. And so many of my friends were like, why are you going down South? Don't they still, do they still lynch people? Is it dangerous for you? All of those things um, from from history impact the present. And so uh, coming down here, though, has been an eye-opening experience. I've lived my entire adult life in the deep South and have come to really love it. Uh, part of its, um, part of its richness is the stark contrast between oppression, um, slavery, obviously Jim Crow, all of that. But at the same time, this incredible resilience of people, uh, freedom fighters, folks who are focused on, pursuing justice and equity in the most difficult of circumstances. And so for me, as a a black person uh, in particular, it's been sort of a pilgrimage, kind of like a coming home. Um, For much of U.S. history, 90% of uh, people of African descent lived in the Southeast. And so there's a lot of our history that's here. Everybody has roots, Mississippi, Alabama, somewhere in the South. And so for me, it's been sort of a recovery of that history and identity. And in 2017, you wrote a blog post about your visit to the Jefferson Davis Presidential Library, which I found 
really convicting and 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 eye-opening. And for some of our international listeners who might be unfamiliar with some of the particulars of American history, Jefferson Davis was the first and only president of the Confederacy, the southern states who seceded from the Union over the right to hold slaves and then went to war with the Union in an attempt to preserve that right. So, Jamar, you write, as a black man walking into a library dedicated to the memory, no, the celebration of a man who led the Confederate States of America, I was acutely aware that this place wasn't meant for me. It wasn't meant for free black folks in the 21st century. Can you tell us about that experience and how it shaped you? So there's a lot that goes into the creation of something like the Jefferson Davis Presidential Library. Um, After the Civil War, Southerners, white Southerners, were trying to make sense of their defeat because even though they had lost militarily, they still largely held the same beliefs about how society should be structured along racial lines. That is to say, white supremacists and racists did not lose their white supremacy or racism just because they lost the Civil War. And so they came up with a series of stories about the the, the mythical South that is now known as the lost cause, um, meaning uh, that the South lost, but there was this noble cause for which it was fighting, this, this idea of, you know, small independent farmers, even though plantation owners were were wealthy and they were the ones who mainly held uh, enslaved people, this idea that this was a Christian society ordered by biblical principles, and um, it would have persisted if not for the interference of Northerners and, um, you know, black people who had quote unquote gotten out of their place. So so around the lost cause have 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 arisen saints and heroes both in the church and militarily and politically, Jefferson Davis being one of them. And so it's a celebration of Jefferson Davis, which is really odd because he was the leader of this group of states that rebelled against the Union, rebelled against the United States for the express purpose of the preservation and expansion of race-based chattel slavery. And you can see this in the Mississippi Articles of Secession, which say that our literally say our cause is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, and it calls it the greatest material interest on earth. And so uh, for people who, who say, you know, the Civil War wasn't about slavery or whatever, yeah, it was. And, and, and you have the authors of the Articles of Secession saying that. So this museum was dedicated to this mythical, romanticized idea of the antebellum South and the nobility of people like Jefferson Davis, who led the Confederacy. And it's quite jarring um, as a student of history and as a black person uh, in the modern day. And at the end of the post, I think this is where it it really hit home at how powerful this narrative um, is for white Southerners, um, and how um, how how it just runs roughshod over over historical fact. To me, uh, you talk about the gift shop. Um, so, what is the gift shop of the president um, the presidential library library dedicated to Jefferson Davis? Tell us about the state of racial equality in America today. It is 
propaganda commodified. Uh, the gift shop was just this sort of hyper concentration of everything that's wrong about how we remember race in the United States. And so it makes um, the Confederate flag emblem, it puts it on absolutely anything and everything. Again, it's a celebration. This is not a memory of it. This is a, a sort of proud declaration. And what that Confederate flag represents is white supremacy. Um, people say, oh, no, it's about heritage, not hate, to which I always respond, well, if you're talking about the Confederacy and the preservation and promotion of race-based chattel slavery, then you're right. It's about heritage, but the heritage is hate. Hate for people of African descent, hate for people who um, wanted to live up to these ideals of freedom and democracy, right? And so um, putting this flag on everything from coffee mugs to the one that stood out to me the most were pajama pants. You could wear uh, these Confederate flag emblems to bed if you wanted. It was, uh, uh, it, again, very stark and startling because you know it exists, but to see it, in, in, in a gift shop in commodified form and all over the place, just plastered throughout the, the gift shop was like, Oh, okay. Uh, there are people who are really clinging to this idea and it makes any sort of promotion of racial justice much, much more difficult. And I, I it struck me that when I've been in museums elsewhere that have, you know, like Germany and the Holocaust, you would never see something like a swastika over pajama pants. You know, it's a, it's a ludicrous idea. And yet we don't see the disconnect when it comes to the Confederate flag. And arguably, I think they're, they're, you know, similar symbols. Um, Certainly. Um, <laughs> yeah. We could go into all that history, but I mean, in the Jim Crow era, uh, especially, but even on up to the 21st century, the Confederate flag and that emblem um, is, is often invoked in white supremacist instances, right? So we have um, Dylan Roof who murdered nine people at a black church in Charleston, South Carolina. You know, you go back through his social media posts and he's posing with a Confederate flag. Where I go at the University of Mississippi in 1962, James Meredith, James Meredith was the first black person to, to desegregate the school. And there were riots, white riots um, on the eve of him enrolling. And they are, number one, gathering at the Confederate monument, which up until 2020 had stood at the entrance of of campus and they're they're gathering some of them under the banner of the confederate battle flag and then you can go back through the history of lynching and all of that stuff so that flag has been deployed in the name of white supremacy and uh, white racial terrorism against black people so i think that comparison is is apropos in many ways because it stands um as the banner under the banner under which a lot of racial violence has been enacted, and you're now devoting much of your time to facilitating spaces and avenues for Black Christian writers and speakers to flourish. Can you tell us about your vision for the Witness and how that um, that space got started? I think you described it well. I'm here taking notes by the way you described it. That's good. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So the witness started uh, out, I mean, it's very tied to my personal biography. So when I first launched it, it was just with me and um, a laptop in my dining room late one night. And I started a Facebook page. At that time, it was called the Reformed African American Network. I was going to seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary. It's a very Eurocentric, white kind of theologically conservative tradition. And I was trying to create space for Black thought and Black perspectives. What that evolved into is The Witness, a Black Christian collective, where we are very self-consciously focused on Black Christians, our priorities, our concerns, and try to address issues of race, religion, politics, culture, from that perspective. But but we always say we're not the voice of black Christians, we're the microphone. And so what we try to do is offer, you know, the breadth of perspectives that black Christians hold uh, on these various issues. And I'm really encouraged because I think one of the most important things that we do is help black Christians see there's another way to exist um, as a black Christian in the U.S. today. So a lot of times uh, we might find ourselves as um, racial and ethnic minorities in predominantly white evangelical spaces, or a lot of times we find ourselves reacting to what white Christians and, and white evangelicals in particular do. What we're trying to do at The Witness is, is say, we don't always have to respond to, quote unquote, the white gaze, which is the idea that whatever we say, think, and do is under the scrutiny of a white majority. And therefore, we kind of have to tiptoe or craft our message and thoughts in order to maneuver <laughs> that gaze and and prevent backlash or, or whatever. And we're just saying, no, you, you, you can say what you mean and mean what you say. And here's a space where you can do that. And I... I'm not a black person, um, but as a white person who has been following the witness for a little while, it is incredibly um, important content um, for white Christians to engage, uh, or at least I've found it so, even though it's not directed for me. And um, I think that all the more reason um, that it that it's so impactful because um, because it shows me that I shouldn't think of myself as the center. And um, and it's an, it's a, it's an important um, corrective. It brings perspectives on religion and um, the Bible. I'm a New Testament scholar, so um, reading those reading voices from other spaces outside of my white majority, which I you know it's easy not to do, um, is incredibly important to what I do um, as a New Testament scholar. It should it should be just part of what it means to be a scholar to read people who have different perspectives. But I just want to say that for our listeners, if you're looking for another place to go for excellent content on um, religion, theology, the Bible, contemporary or um, current issues, etc., the witness, you should check it out. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So that that leads me to, um, I guess, a follow up question that'll take us into our, your your book and also you as a scholar and, um, and your work at The Witness. Why is, um, in your view, why is racial inequality not just an important issue for Christians to think about, but actually a gospel issue? 
So theologically, I'm sure you can speak um, better to this than I, but it's all over the Bible. Um, I really root a lot of my understandings of racial justice all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and um, verses 26 through 28 about the image of God and all people being made um, with uh, inherent dignity and worth because the Creator made us, right? And um, that transcends racial or ethnic distinctions or any human-made distinctions that we might come up with. And you see this as a, as a sort of um, pattern throughout the Bible, but also you, you learn that, you know, the world uh, of the Bible is an, is an incredibly multi-ethnic, multilingual, multinational world. And so even though the Bible doesn't speak directly to modern day notions of race, particularly between black and white in the United States, it's talking all over the place about how different people groups should relate. And, um, how in the epistles saying the great mystery of the gospel is that it's for not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, that this is an inclusive uh, message of liberation for people. So it's it's biblical, <laughs> for one. Um, and as you look back at the history, you see this really concerted stalwart effort on the part of white Christians to separate the spiritual and the material. Uh, which which then frames the conversation about, you know, well, is, you know, race, racial justice, social justice, are these actually, um, you know, part and parcel of the gospel? But even that very question, I think, is rooted in sort of the historical project of white supremacy. And I'll give one example. Um, in the 1700s, uh, the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel sent out missionaries, and there was one in particular, Francis Lejal, who was a missionary to Native Americans and to people of African descent in North America. And on those rare occasions when he did persuade people to convert to Christianity, he had them recite baptismal vows just before they were about to get baptized. And he basically, in those vows, says, I'm paraphrasing, but you... Um, you vow that you want to undertake the sacrament of baptism purely for the sake of your own soul and not out of any pursuit of freedom or emancipation. In other words, uh, he was saying, you know, the baptism is going to be a spiritual thing, but it in no way implies that it will change your material circumstances or conditions. If you're enslaved, you're going to remain enslaved, and you vow before the Lord that that is your only motivation is for your spiritual salvation. That then leads to questions and, and the bifurcation of the spiritual and the material that still really plague us today. And honestly, I'm indebted um, in part to a Catholic education. I went to Catholic school, K-8, to and then for college at Notre Dame. And there's something called the Catholic social tradition. There's lots of issues with you know the Roman Catholic Church writ large. But what the Catholic social tradition taught me was that these issues are, are part of being a Christian and being a disciple and not something completely separate. Yeah, I grew up in, in, in the Catholic, like in a Catholic worker movement, kind of a Catholic church too. And I, that's something that was really jarring to me then moving into the evangelical world as a teenager, how, how um, bifurcated life was all of a sudden, or my spiritual life from my social involvement. Um, it just, it, I think 
it's an overcorrective in a lot of ways. My, I have a, I have a question about the the relationship between theology and this spiritual material divide. As you've um, as you've researched this as a historian, um, is it that white theologians promoting um, missionary work in places like the United States, or um, I'm thinking of my own context now, where uh, I live in the UK, and the UK sent um, Anglican missionaries to Africa. Is it, or, I mean, or uh, lots of places, obviously, but, um, is it the case that they're creating theology to prop up, um, in essence, material interests? Like which comes first? Does the bad theology drive the colonialism, um, or does the colonialism drive the bad theology? Or is it more of an organic relationship? Yeah, that is a debate within um, the historical field as well. Um, viewing it as a Christian and historian, I think it's a combination of factors. One, uh, it, people don't need any excuse to hate other people, you know, based on differences, right? You're 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 not me. You're not part of my group. So I'm going to come up with ways to um, prove my superiority over you ideologically, politically, militarily, etc. So I think there's already sort of prejudice, uh, baked in <laughs> across, uh, people groups, right? The, 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 the question that has salience for me is what made white supremacy in North America and in particular an institution like race-based chattel slavery so resilient. Uh, and that's where I think the the uh, material factors, what 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 the Bible calls greed, comes in. So it's it's just very telling to me that it took the, the Civil War, which to this day remains um, the United States' bloodiest war, took the Civil War to finally abolish race based chattel slavery, and that is not because um, people were just that hateful. It is, but it was also because there was money on the line that the chattel part of race-based chattel slavery categorized human beings as property. And when wealthy people in particular were faced with the loss of their quote-unquote property, well, that, that literally put them up in arms. Um, and it wasn't just Southerners, right? So the um, profits from uh, unfree labor accrued, of course, to plantation owners, but also accrued to Northeasterners who would, you know, take raw materials and, and make them into finished goods and then export them to places in Europe. So it was sort of a multinational global enterprise. And there was also the fact that even white people who were not slave owners sort of aspired to that and also had another group of people that they could look down on. Um, so they're mutually constitutive, prejudice and greed. Um, but I think what made it so resilient was the the profit factor. Jamar, you say toward the beginning of the book, The Color of Compromise, that the color of compromise is about telling the truth so that reconciliation, robust, consistent, honest reconciliation might occur across racial lines. So in your view, why are American Christians or American uh, white American Christians so often quick to rush to reconciliation without the hard discipline of truth telling? And why is that approach doomed to failure? 
Yes. So now we're getting we're getting to the crux of the issue. Why 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 are we still so divided by race? And a lot of it has to do with what you just brought up. So so we were talking earlier about the bivocation between the spiritual and the material. And I think some of that is at play. So so first of all, we got to talk about how racial reconciliation, at least among white evangelicals, has tended to go wrong. And one way it is has gone wrong is that it still separates the spiritual and the material. Uh, so it has focused on race and racism primarily in individualistic terms, that that racism is an issue of personal prejudice, one person toward another. Therefore, the solution is, well, I'm nice to people across racial and ethnic lines, or some of my best friends are black. We may have heard that before. And that is a, a telling remark because it's saying, uh, you know, the person is seeing themselves as not racist because they have cordial relationships uh, with people across racial and ethnic lines. Which, by the way, these relationships can be awfully superficial, uh, but they they sort of appropriate any kind of contact with a racial and ethnic minority that's not negative as evidence that they are therefore not racist. But it completely um, eludes the impact of of race on systems and institutions. You know, the fact that uh, black women in the United States die in maternity related deaths at three times the rate of white women. Um, uh, that that uh, black males face incarceration at a one in three rate compared to white males at a one in 17 rate, that, that uh, the median white family's wealth is 10 times that of the median black family's wealth, right? And so racial reconciliation efforts in the U.S., among evangelicals in particular, but, but really broadly, have focused on building friendships, and building personal relationships. But what I always say is, you know what, that's necessary, but not sufficient because all the cups of coffee in the world aren't going to do a thing about mass incarceration. All the pulpit swaps or choir swaps in the world aren't going to do a thing to, to eliminate food deserts in, you know, poorer areas, which are disproportionately populated by black and brown folks, right? So we have to work on a policy level. But to date, that has been an issue. And so this is where history, I think, can be helpful, is that when we look back at every era of uh, history, as far as European contact with North America and later U.S. history, you can see the impact of racism and white supremacy on race relations, both outside the church and within it. Because we don't leave who we are and we don't leave our society or culture at the door of the church. We bring that in with us. And until we start to address um, this history that still has bearing on the present, particularly in systemic and institutional ways, then we're going to get these kind of superficial symbolic gestures of you know, the photo op of, of people of different colors being in the same space or, you know... Um, these moments of reconciliation, like you can see that there's foot washings, there's tears, there's hugs, but then everybody sort of goes back to their corners and the status quo remains the same. Yeah, that's I mean, it's really convicting to listen to you to talk about that um, because I've been in those spaces. You know, I've been in those moments of beautiful racial reconciliation that don't lead to lasting change. And um, what I appreciate uh 
about the color of compromise is that first of all, you show white Christians that like, we didn't get here by mistake. We built this system and it's going to take intentional shalom bringing um, system dismantling justice to undo it. And I, I think that's, it's just an incredibly um, important perspective to us con- to consider. But um, I, I can hear, because I've been in those spaces, um, white Christians saying something like, you can't legislate against prejudice. You know, you can't, um, you can't make somebody um, not racist through legislation. What, what's wrong with that kind of a statement? Um, and where does it fall short in terms of like a white Christian's political engagement? So MLK, Martin Luther King Jr. said a law can't change someone's heart, but it can restrain the heartless. And so, you know, in many cases, like we still don't have a federal anti-lynching law on the books in the United States, despite the fact that there are nearly 5,000 cases of lynching in the Jim Crow era that we know of. And yet legislation was never passed uh, because politicians could never muster the political will to do so. Um, And yet, you know, even though passing that law, even though it wouldn't change someone's heart, could make it make it illegal for them to murder a black person in an extrajudicial, you know, act of racial terrorism. Um, So anyway, the, the point being laws still serve a function. And in many cases, I don't really care what someone personally believes. I want laws that will protect uh, the marginalized and oppressed um, and, and there to be sanctions against that. So um, that's, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is beyond the political, legal realm, we should understand that when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. And um, this part of the body, uh, in specific, people of African descent are saying, hey, conditions are bad for us. They have been and they still are in many ways. Yes, it's changed somewhat, which, by the way, was due to protest and uprising and changing laws, which you're saying we don't need. Um, but we still have more work to do. And I just I think it it betrays an incredible both arrogance and stubbornness on the part of many white Christians, if they say, you know, you can't legislate morality or change laws, don't change hearts. Okay. That's your perspective. But what are your black brothers and sisters saying? Are you hearing us? Are you, are you listening to what we say is wrong and how we say you can help? Or are you imposing in a very sort of imperialistic, even supremacist sense your ideas of what's going to address this racial problem on the people who are most adversely impacted. So I think, you know, biblically speaking, this requires a degree of, of real humility uh, to listen and to learn and then to act. And I would just point out that it's not like evangelical white Christians are apolitical. You know, yes, they, they do talk <laughs> about systems. They just don't talk about racism. Right. But they're very good at talking about things like abortion, you know, we're not, we're trying to legislate morality in that sense, but not on this other issue. So I think there's like an internal hypocrisy in, in the discourse of the movement. Um, Cause clearly we do think that laws serve, serve a purpose. We just are trying to decide 
which which marginalized group counts in terms of our political allegiance. And I, I think that's really problematic. Well, that's a great point. I, I write in the book about the, the, the Presbyterian uh, doctrine of the spirituality of the church. Uh, this really came to the fore in the mid-19th century by Southern Presbyterian theologians. Um, and on paper, it sounds kind of like it makes sense. It basically, the spirituality of the church says that the role of the church in terms of politics and society is, quote, ministerial and declarative. And so the church is a servant. It serves the people who who follow Christ and uh, ministers, administers the sacraments and, and does spiritual things that only the church can do. And in its declarative role, it essentially says to um, the, the, the surrounding society, thus saith the Lord. It declares to the broader culture uh, biblical principles, but it doesn't get involved in terms of like a state church or something, sort of a separation of church and state. Um, now that can can have positive effects, but the way it was deployed, uh, to your point, was very selective. And so the spirituality of the church really came into play on issues of racism and white supremacy, when all of a sudden the church was called to take a side on race-based chattel slavery or legal segregation in um, uh, the Jim Crow era, all of a sudden it was like, oh, spirituality of the church, we can't touch that. That's a political, social issue. The role of the church is spiritual. We can't do anything about that. But on other matters, prohibition, reading the Bible in schools, um, praying in schools, like you mentioned abortion, oh, all of a sudden the church can be very political. So yeah, it's it's extremely selective and usually what they select um, to to speak out on is not issues of race. I think that that's a good segue to this, uh, to a, a little more nitty gritty of the book. In your chapter on the antebellum South, you note some striking similarities between pro-slavery Christians and contemporary evangelicals, especially in their view of and their use of the Bible in appealing to the plain reading of the text in terms of how they're going to engage in political conversations. And you say, pro-slavery theological arguments respected the Bible's authority and employed a straightforward method of scriptural interpretation. Now, what's the problem with employing that sort of a reading strategy and then trying to apply it to something like race-based slavery in the antebellum South, or trying to apply a plain reading hermeneutic to contemporary examples of racial inequality that we continue to see in the U.S. today? Right, right. Yeah, great point. Um, so we might call these folks biblical literalists, if you will, um, uh, perhaps even fundamentalists, although this was a really widespread kind of uh, way of reading the Bible. The problem is it's extremely rigid. Um, it is extremely, uh, uh, it, it does not take into account context, um, historical changes, uh, potential applications and how those applications might change over time. Um, so what, what, what the folks in the antebellum South were saying, basically pro-slavery theologians, and that juxtaposition of terms is important because they were using theology to justify American race-based chattel slavery. And what they were saying was, in a quote-unquote plain reading of Scripture, the Bible never expressly condemns slavery. In fact, many of the Bible's so-called heroes 
enslaved people. Um, and the Bible never sort of condemns them for that. And so pro-slavery theologians are looking at other Christians, particularly Christians in the North, um, abolitionist Christians, and they're saying, well, you all are doing funny things with the Bible because show me chapter and verse where slavery is wrong. And if you can't do that, then what you're doing is eisegesis. You're importing meaning into the text. You're just uh, putting your liberal agenda on top of the biblical text, which we can hear those echoes today, right? <laughs> um, yeah, that's yeah. Very, those are very much the dividing lines. And what, what abolitionists were saying was, well, what about all this love your neighbor as yourself stuff? What about the, the exodus, right, in the Old Testament? What about the entire thrust of Scripture, which is toward liberty and equality and equity and freedom and justice for people? Doesn't that matter at all? And you have pro-slavery theologians saying, well, just show me from the text, right? And since it, it, it really bamboozled a lot of people because if you do open the Bible and you read a particular verse um, about slavery, right, it'll seem, you know, what pro-slavery theologians were saying, well, the Bible regulates slavery. It doesn't condemn it, right? And and to a lot of folks who weren't theologians, who weren't educated, who really trusted their pastors or whatever, that made sense. It made a lot of sense on its face. And then um, abolitionist Christians really struggled to articulate, uh, in many cases, a, a sort of comprehensive, easily understandable case for abolition and liberation in the U.S. context. Um, so what I say in the book is that uh, the Civil War was a battle over race-based chattel slavery, but in many senses, it was also a battle over the Bible. I wanted to ask a question about this battle over the Bible because I think you're you're absolutely right to see this pattern of um, kind of the the literalist application repeating itself. Um, yeah, as you say, there's many echoes, and um, one of the texts that I see kind of bandied about in this regard we don't we we don't see a lot of pro slavery um, texts being employed in the in the service of um, kind of the the lack of engagement that the white Christian church has in America with this, um, with issues of racial equality. We don't see them, you know, promoting slavery anymore, thankfully. Uh, but we do see things like, uh, like Galatians 3.28 being appealed to. Well, you know, there is no longer slave nor free, male and female, Jew or Gentile, right, is the first one that Paul is, is mentioning. Um, there isn't, you know, the dividing wall of hostility has been brought down. Um, racism is solved in Christ. Therefore, we don't have to do anything. And they're, appe they're appealing in a sense to this plain reading of the text. Um, how do we begin to talk about race in a way that's consistent with the whole of the biblical witness instead of going to these little, um, I guess, touchstone texts in the New Testament that seem to do away with the concept of race altogether? Right. Yeah. So largely a question of, of hermeneutics. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's, it's very low hanging fruit um, to, to just look at your bookshelf and, and see who you're learning from. Right. Uh, especially in terms of theology and Christianity. And for me, you know, I've been a Christian, the majority of my life have learned about hundreds of pastors and theologians and have gotten MDiv and everything, the vast majority have been white and male, which doesn't automatically say that what they're saying isn't good. 
It just says that it's from a very narrow perspective. And so if we look at the sources that we count as authorities, whether theologians, pastors, authors, whomever it might be, um, diversify your bookshelf, so to speak. Uh, a lot of it, a lot of this comes down to listening to and learning from the voices of marginalized and oppressed people, whether that be women, people from Central and South America, uh, Southeast Asia, African countries, um, and in the United States, of course, black people. Uh, black people as a demographic are the most religious group in the United States, and we are the most Christian group in the United States, which means we have a very long tradition in Christianity, a tradition of biblical interpretation. Um, because of racism and white supremacy, we haven't had we haven't always had access to the academy like white people. So our theology may not always be found in a systematic theology textbook or a formal Bible commentary. Our theology is found in uh, Negro spirituals and gospel songs. It's found in blues music and hip hop. It's found in our sermons. It's found in our political activism. It's found in speeches. And so, um, listening to those voices that come from outside of the mainstream or have been uh, politically, economically, socially marginalized in some way is to me the one of the most important things that we can do. And you can, in a, in a sense, uh, approach scripture with new eyes and new ears when you do that. Uh, so so large part of what we're trying to do at The Witness is um, a recovery and for some a reintroduction to uh, the Black Christian tradition and what we can learn from that. And one difference, specific difference I'll point to is a lot of times in white Christian circles, um, especially white evangelical circles, the starting point is the New Testament, particularly the resurrection or Paul's epistles. The epistles are, you know, you know, a lot of people love them in the Western tradition because they're very sort of propositional, uh, logical, if this, then this, right? Whereas in the Black Christian tradition, oftentimes our starting point is the Old Testament in general and issues of, of justice and, and all of that, but also specifically the Exodus and the literal emancipation of enslaved uh, uh, Israelites um, being uh, rescued from their enslavement by God, their deliverer. And so with those different starting points, both are true, but they sort of expand and out in different ways theologically, where one is sort of already a story of triumph and resurrection and empowerment, and the other is a story of being um, an oppressed people delivered by God and, and the literal liberation of people. So you see those themes of liberation a lot of times in the theologies that come out of marginalized people groups. As a person who has benefited tremendously from authors like Willie James Jennings or J. Cameron Carter, um, I would not read the way that I do without engaging those voices. Um, they aren't peripheral to what I do. Um, they need to be at the center. Because quite frankly, the biblical text puts marginalized voices right. at the center. Yes. 
That's so, the key point, so right? Like we often read. They don't belong in the back of your syllabus in theological <laughs> educators. <laughs> say that loud. Um, yeah, I often say, you know, <laughs> this is uh, this is part of the required curriculum, not an elective. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, Jamar, at, at OnScript, we do speed rounds uh, in most interviews where we ask a series of fun questions, kind of, um, or just questions that might not come up in another format. Uh, and we don't really have rules for it, except that you don't have to think about your answer and you get to say what you want. And you don't have to defend what you say. Like Sound good? It. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So first question, speed round. What is one food that most reminds you of home? Fried pork chops. That's very Midwestern, actually. Yeah, that's very, very <laughs> <Maybe>. meat and potatoes. <laughs> very, yeah, my, my, my parents used to drown pork chops in cream of mushroom soup. Uh-huh, yep. Not casserole, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, what's on your iTunes playlist right now? Uh, Khalid. He's a R&B neo-soul singer. Love his smooth voice. Hmm. Give us one piece of your best advice for coping with the pandemic. Mm, um, uh, mental health therapy. If you can afford it or find, you know, some institution that can, we are really putting up with a lot. And I'm afraid, uh, at least it's true for me, I don't realize all of the emotions and stuff that's going on beneath the surface that's actually affecting my health, my attention span, my ability to sleep and uh, getting with a professional, a, a good professional who can help you walk through and work through that stuff, I think uh, is something that cannot wait. Amen. I'm married to a mental health professional, so can hear him cheering along too. And your pastor is not a mental health professional. <laughs> that's the other. Um, what's a trend in society that scares you? Or, you know, five trends in society that scare you? <laughs> Um, my goodness, Christian nationalism. Ooh, it is so frustrating to me. Uh, folks have made critical race theory into this boogeyman and have called it the greatest threat to Christianity in the United States when what history will tell you and what the present day will tell you is that Christian nationalism, this toxic blend of a form of Christianity, white supremacy, and a perverted kind of patriotism uh, that's the greatest threat to Christianity in the U.S. if you want to talk about an ideology. So Christian nationalism, but also what's happening or what has happened to the checks and balances of our federal government, um, whew, especially with the recent death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, Supreme Court appointments, that is just absolutely chilling. Uh, the security of our elections from foreign interference, also the attempt to undermine uh, the U.S. postal system and mail-in balloting with the pandemic, all of it is, this is a very frightening time. Yeah, indeed. I, oh, indeed. Okay. Other side of the question. <laughs> What's a trend in society that gives you hope? I am encouraged by the people who have really been catalyzed for racial justice, particularly in the wake of the absolutely horrendous murder of George Floyd by a white police officer. Uh, a lot of people will focus on the fact that, you know, the protests and uprisings have died down, that the millions of people who participated are now sort of getting back to business as close to usual as can be in a pandemic. Um, 
But what I'm encouraged by is that, you know, there's always sort of peaks and valleys of participation, but there's also always a, a consistent through line of people, a small group of people who are really committed to justice and will not waver. And I think 2020 has uh, brought in a whole fresh group of, of folks who, who now see the issue of racial justice in a new light, are prioritizing it, and will never be the same as a result. And what is the most important book in theology in the past 50 years, in your opinion? <laughs> um, well, I'll just speak from my field of racial justice and history. I think a really important book for folks to, to, to read and uh, incorporate is Divided by Faith uh, by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. Uh, it's a sociological examination of why churches in the United States are divided along racial lines, but they do a fantastic job of articulating how the the, the actual theological beliefs of white evangelicals um, perpetuate racial separation in spite of verbal professions to the contrary. So you'll get most white evangelicals giving lip service to diversity and integration and all of this stuff, but their very beliefs, which which are highly individualistic, uh, actually undermine that stated commitment. So that's been a very helpful framework as I've thought about uh, these issues, both historically and in the contemporary era. Mm, that's a great book. Um. Moving on to the the interview interview because you said something that I um that I that I want to follow up. Um, you have a section in your book. Uh, you just talked about the the long history of the black church or the tradition of the black church and um in its an impact on um the black community certainly, but hopefully also uh, Christianity in the U.S. as a large it's shaped Christianity. Um, can you talk about how the black church um was active and shaped racial, the fight for racial equality during say reconstruction all the way through the civil rights movement. And then, um, conversely, maybe, can you give us some examples of how the white church, um, impeded that progress and, and, and indeed, uh, helped to codify the racial injustice of the Jim Crow South? So I think perhaps the most important function of the black church writ large has been as an arc of refuge for black people. So the black church historically was the one sort of community institution where black people could have their dignity affirmed and respected. And so where they would be called boy or auntie, um, in the broader culture, they would be sir and ma'am and reverend and church mother at the church, um, whether they're, where they would be forced to, you know, because of their jobs, uh, dress a certain way on, on Sunday, they could wear their Sunday best. And that was a way of sort of signaling their, their dignity and their, um, equality with other people. So, from Reconstruction through civil rights on up to the present day, the black church has served to affirm and promote the dignity of black people. Uh, politically and socially speaking, the black church has also been a site of organizing. Uh, so whether it is holding mass meetings at churches during the civil rights movement or, or kind of smaller organizing meetings um, in church basements and whatnot, 
uh, black churches have acted as a a physical site for organizing throughout the long black freedom struggle. Um, Also a site of innovation and uh, intellectual thought as, um, you know, organizers came up with strategies in uh, black churches, but they also drew on uh, theology and the black church tradition to formulate ideas about freedom and dignity and equality and protest that undergirded ideologically uh, much of the black freedom movement. So um, it has been, and I th- I still think is a vital part of uh, promoting the black freedom struggle in the United States and even globally. Um, but there was a second part to your question. Can you remind me of that? My second question was: we have we have um, you know, the Black Church as a tremendous site of organization and um, a, as a refuge, et cetera, for racial equality. Um, it, <laughs> we we have maybe the the opposite of that happening in white churches. We have white churches that at best are, are ambivalent um, and at worst are antagonistic toward. Um, fights for racial equality. Can you talk about how the theology, again, of the white church um, leads to that kind of indifference um, in action or indeed um, antagonism toward something like racial justice? Like how did white churches respond to the civil rights movement? I think we don't, we don't learn that part. We learn about Martin Luther King and we don't, and we celebrate now white churches celebrate the legacy of Martin Luther King. And we never actually look back at how white churches behaved when Martin Luther King was an activist. So I was just, can you talk about that a bit? That's so important. Um, So if we look at the civil rights movement in particular in the chapter in the color of compromise on the civil rights movement, I sort of juxtapose Martin Luther King Jr. and Billy Graham who was white and in many ways served as kind of the face and the representative of white evangelicalism for uh, half a century, really. And they're so interesting because they represent such um, different approaches to racial justice. So, of course, we know MLK uh, was very active and activist in his orientation toward racial justice, not in spite of his Christianity, but because of it and his speeches, his sermons are all laced with a theological sort of justification of the beloved community and the pursuit of equality. Um, And Billy Graham is interesting because he's not the sort of foaming at the mouth racist we might picture during the civil rights movement. Um, so, so when we think of, you know, what is a racist, right? We're thinking of people from the Ku Klux Klan who put on white robes and hoods, the people who are burning crosses or lynching people, right? Certainly those folks are present, but sort of the whole premise of the book, The Color of Compromise, is that the most extreme acts of racism can only occur because of the compromise and complicity from a majority of white Christians, Right. And so Billy Graham sort of represents that majority uh, or what Martin Luther King called in his letter from a Birmingham jail, the the white moderate. And that's sort of uh, what, what Billy Graham characterized. Now, he had some interesting moments. In 1953, he pulls down the ropes that segregated black and white people at one of his crusades. Um, he even has Martin Luther King himself in 1957 pray at the opening of one of his crusades. But by 1963... He's telling MLK and other civil rights activists to put on the brakes a bit. Uh, Graham is not persuaded that direct action nonviolence is the way to promote racial progress. 
Um, and what we got to understand about somebody like Billy Graham is he's fundamentally an evangelist. And so he wants to avoid controversy because he doesn't want to limit his audience who might hear the good news. But but right there, we get, again, this bifurcation of the spiritual and the material, right? As if the good news did not include racial justice, did not speak to contemporary issues. And again, we get to this, the, the selective nature of this, right? Because Billy Graham trumpeted anti-communism. I mean, he was all about denouncing communism as godless and atheistic and a threat to not only Christians, but to the nation itself. But when it came to racial justice, while he wasn't somebody actively punching back against civil rights, um, he was much more circumspect. He was much more restrained in that. In, in what was really you know, one of the defining moments of the 20th century was the civil rights struggle. Uh, he represented what what many white evangelicals chose, which was the way of sort of silence, apathy, or tacit support of the status quo. And my burden, in, even in the 21st century, I believe in the United States, we're in the next wave of the civil rights movement. And what I am trying in as, to do in as many ways as I can is let Christians know in general, and white Christians in particular, like this is the movement, and this is the moment, and now is the time to speak up. And if you're silent right now, then, you know, should we last that long, and we look back 30, 40, 50 years from now, we'll still be saying, where was the church? Where were white Christians? Why didn't they do more? And it's it's so damning to think that white Christians are still so concerned about communism, as if communism is a threat to Christianity, but they don't think that systemic racism is a threat to Christianity. Won't that, even say it's real. Yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, that that's really troubling to me, that we're, we're fine with a Christianity that's made its peace with racism. And I, I don't, I don't understand what Bible we're reading, if we come to that conclusion. Um, and there, there's an increasing body of scholarship now that's saying that that this is a, a a not a bug but a feature of white Christianity. That there's something about when whiteness comes into contact with Christianity that actually um, voids, you know, the way white Christians practice Christianity voids it of its power to work against racism. Um, so that's books like White Too Long by Robert P. Jones, uh, Jesus and John Wayne by by Kristen Dumay, um, Apostles of Reason by Catherine Stewart. There's there's a whole lot of books coming out just from 2015 on to the present day that 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 really say, you know, this isn't like a contradiction of white Christianity. It's sort of the fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's chilling. <laughs> it, it's chilling. That's that's exactly the the reaction. I'm not. It doesn't. It doesn't surprise me um, when when we look at it in through that lens that that's the that's what emerges. Um, but it is a chilling feature, uh, and it's like I said, um, and like many have said, it's not like we're here by mistake. This is woven into the architecture of American Christianity. Um, or Western Christianity, I mean. Um, so I guess to ask the hard question or the direct question, what do you think it's going to take to separate evangelical Christianity from that toxic nationalism in America? Is that even a possible task at this point? I think the vast majority of people will not do it because what it requires is really, really hard. 
Um, ideologically, what it requires is for white people to understand whiteness and to see themselves as raced people, raced with a D, and um, as part of a racialized culture, which part of white supremacy, um, part of its tactic is to try to remain so ubiquitous as to become invisible. And so, so many white people don't see themselves as having a culture, don't see themselves as really having a race um, and everything that goes along with that. So it's going to take uh, on the part of white people uh, recognizing that that you are indeed white, not just as a descriptor, but as sort of a culture and uh, a, a power dynamic that continues to have impact in the present day. And to some extent, distance themselves from that ideology of whiteness, which you, you you know, one of the things that I advocate is sort of a recovery of ethnicity and um, one's sort of history and heritage nationally. So, you know, when when many Europeans crossed the Atlantic and came to North America, they exchanged their uh, French identity, their British identity, their German identity, their uh, Italian identity over time for whiteness, right? And and you've actually cut off a huge part of your identity and exchanged it for um, an identity that can only exist with anti-blackness at its core, right? That's how whiteness is defined, is it's not black. Um, so if you lean into your whiteness, then you're automatically and necessarily leaning into anti-blackness. So you got to find something else to to grab hold of in terms of identity. Obviously, our Christian identity uh, for people of faith is is um, central to that. But uh, also learning that you know your 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 soul identity is not just white, right? Um, the other thing is a, a divesting of power. Um, it, it's what the Bible would call unjust gain, and that's financially certainly. Um, I'm an advocate of reparations in some way, shape, or form because. Um, Black people's labor has been exploited and uncompensated, and that extends even beyond race-based chattel slavery to being excluded from unions, not getting promotions, being um, uh, excluded from certain jobs and certain fields. Uh, so there has to be some sort of financial um, redress. And by the way, Christians don't have to wait for federal or state governments to do something. Uh, they can decide among themselves as churches, as denominations, uh, that, that they can do something about that. But like I said, it's so hard that the majority of people won't do it. I think the, the burden is for racial justice advocates to continually create spaces where we're moving closer to, uh, racial justice and the beloved community and giving people a picture for what's actually possible. Because for a lot of people, um, until they see it, it won't be something that they want to strive for. Uh, and it's just what we do. We pray, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So regardless of its sort of worldly success or effectiveness, this is what we do because we are people of faith and it's the right thing to do. That reminds me of a turn of phrase in one of Stanley Hauerwas's books where he talks about the, the just community insert or the community inserting a just option in the imaginations of people. I think that's a really apt description of what the church could be. Um, but as you say, it's it's got to be more than hugs and handshakes. It's got to be real reparative justice um, that we engage in. And that work is hard. And hopefully um, with enough, hopefully there's a tipping point at some some stage. 
Your last chapter is called The Fierce Urgency of Now. What, what do you mean by the fierce urgency of now? So that's a phrase that com- comes from Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. And he's talking about the fact that even by 1963, the nation had failed to come through on its promises of freedom, democracy, and equality for all, especially black people. And he said, you know, it's been long enough. We have to respond to the fierce urgency of now. And it's just such an eloquent phrase that unfortunately, uh, more than half a century later is still very applicable where the freedom and equality, um, the democratic principles, uh, which this nation says that it's founded on, haven't been true for black people. And so we got to do something now. And my goal in the book is is really to get you to that last chapter. Um, you know, after we've surveyed 400 years of North American and U.S. history, my hope is that you would be burdened to do something, that you would say, I never realized how big, wide, deep, and far back this problem goes. And now I must act. I must do something about it. So it's in that chapter that I introduce a model I've been developing called the Arc of Racial Justice. And it stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. And I think you need all three components to sort of holistically address racial justice today. And it's really an answer to that question. What do we do? What do we do about race, racism right now? And awareness means, you know, building up your knowledge base. And it's never been easier to do that because you can get on the Internet and find more information that you'd ever be able to digest. You can watch documentaries. You can read books. You can attend panels. You can do Zoom calls. You can listen to podcasts like this one. Um, but, but race and racism operate according to a playbook, and we need to know that playbook. Relationships means, um, you know, we talked a lot about this sort of um, – shortcomings of an individualistic sort of personal relationship approach to racism. But as I said before, they are still necessary. They're not sufficient, but they're necessary. And I think that's one of the compelling things about a Christian approach to racial justice is that, um, you know, the, the Christianity teaches us that all reconciliation is relational, um, that there is a human to human element in, in this that we cannot avoid and that the other must become real to us uh, in some sense. But again, you know, we can't stop there. And so the commitment aspect talks about it's not just people who can perpetuate racism. Policies can perpetuate racism, too. So we need to work on a policy level about our laws, our practices, our structures, our institutions that are really creating these invisible cages that um, continue to trap people within the confines of racism. And is ARC the, the subject of your next book? Is that, do you expand yes. on that more? Because Jamar has another book coming out. He's he's already a, um, a best-selling author, and I'm sure this one will hit the, the New York Times bestseller list too, Lord willing. But his next book is called so. How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity, and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. So uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that project and um, and and what, what, did, what we can expect from that book? Yeah. So in many ways, I thought this second book was going to be the first book because the the question I get most frequently, whether I'm talking it, to college students or at conferences, churches or in secular environments, the question I get most frequently is what do we do? Um, you know, these are people who are on board that, that racism is a problem. They want to be part of the solution, but don't always know where to start or what the next step is. And so in many ways, how to fight racism is a continuation of that last chapter uh, in the color of compromise called the fierce urgency of now. 
So it is an entire book that prioritizes the practical and it's structured around the arc of racial justice. So there's three chapters on awareness, three chapters on relationships, three chapters on commitment. And in each of those chapters, um, I, I give you some um, fundamental kind of understandings, sort of a theoretical framework, but the bulk of it is actual racial justice practices. So for instance, I talk about Juneteenth, which is... Um, a mashup of the words June and 19th. And it's the day in uh, 1865, I believe, when uh, enslaved people in Texas first learned of their emancipation. And it's the oldest celebration of black freedom in the United States. It recently became popular in 2020 in the wake of the George Floyd uprisings. But in How to Fight Racism, I talk about how celebrating Juneteenth, which we should, uh, might look different among um black people and white people, uh, because for black people, it's a celebration of emancipation. For white people, it should also be that celebration, but they should also kind of soberly revi revisit how they were part of the problem <laughs> and might still be. Uh, so, so that's one thing I talk about reparations in there. I also talk about, um, mental health therapy and creating a pipeline of mental health therapists who are people of color and can address issues of race and ethnicity, uh, experientially as well as from their training. So, um, again, it, it hopefully it gives people a lot of ideas for practicing racial justice. I'm not concerned if you use my ideas, but hopefully, like you said, with that Stanley Hauerwas quote, it creates sort of, um, a, a, a space for imagination about what we might do about racial justice today. And it comes out in, well, in the UK, it's released in January. When is it being released in the US? Same time, January uh, 5th, 2021. You can pre-order now online and uh, hopefully it's the next step in, in this journey toward racial justice. Yeah, absolutely. Pre-ordered online. We'll put a link um, to both of these books on our OnScript website. And just a reminder, if you click through OnScript to order on Amazon, we get a tiny percentage of the sale. So we'd really appreciate it if you did that. And friends, that's all the time we have for today. So I hope that we will do that. You will order Jamar's book if you haven't already read The Color of Compromise, um, as obviously millions of people have if it's on the um, New York Times bestseller list. But thanks for tuning in. And Jamar, thank you so much for joining us. Great questions. I enjoyed it. I hope we can uh, have another conversation after after the, the next book comes out. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.